Father, we come before you and we, we thank you that you have provided the technology to broadcast, uh, to have Zoom, uh, to talk to each other face-to-face by even cell phone or email, all of those things that take place. You have blessed us so much. But Father, we would first pray for wisdom that we might be your wise servants in these days which are becoming more and more evil. There are those who are bent on creating chaos in the major cities across our nation. And we ask, Lord, that you would subdue them, that you would confuse them, that you would throw their ranks into disarray. And we ask that you would, uh, by using your saints, Lord, those saints in high places in this country, those with voices that reach from shore to shore. We ask that you would use them to bring peace and calmness and order. And we'll trust you for that, Lord, for you, as I said, are a God of order. And we ask also, Lord, that you would fill us full of wisdom as we read your word and and discover what biblical love is. We thank you for leaving us your Holy Spirit to bring us understanding. And we ask that you would teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the operation of the gifts, which we covered in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, there was one thing that was lacking, and that was love. It was necessary that it be elevated if the believers in Corinth were to be Christ-like. There were divisions in the church. There were those who had been sued by others in the church. There were those who were left out of their love feasts, and there were those who were prideful in their use of the gifts. And God wants to bring correction to all these places that are in error. And we will see love supremacy here. We will see how love actually works, its, its chemistry, and also love. Will love end? Will it cease at some time? Or will it continue? What is the destiny of love? In chapter 13 of verse 1, it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So in whatever we undertake to do, if we do not have love, there is no benefit whatsoever. Love is the guiding principle that God has put through all of his creation, and it is evident that God is trying to communicate to us who have fallen away from perfect love what we need to return to. So love supremacy, love is more important than all the gifts previously listed. We get the love of God. It's placed in our hearts according to the scripture. And apparently the Christians in Corinth thought that the workings of the gifts were more supreme or higher in order than actual love. And it is not the position that is important. It is the person that is important. It is not the gift that reigns supreme. It is the person who we are supposed to love and adore, just like Christ does 
towards us. And of course, the church had it wrong. Now, there are types of love listed in the time of Christ, uh, three of them in Scripture. And the first one that I'd like to go through is storge. It is called, this is the Greek word for love. We, we have the one word for love, L-O-V-E. And I can say, I love my wife and I love spaghetti. But they are on two different planes. Spaghetti is not the same, the love that I have for that, as I have for my wife. But this particular love here, the storge love, it's a quiet and abiding feeling within us, which, resting on an object as near to us, it recognizes that we are closely bound up with it and takes satisfaction in its recognition. Now, that says a lot. That's a classic definition of what it is here. It's a natural movement of the soul. For instance, we, we have this love between parents and children. And sometimes it's not a feeling like we have a romantic feeling. It is a feeling that you have an obligation that you say, I love my parents and I will take care of my parents as they age. Or I love my children and I will take care of my children as they grow up inside the household. It is that love that carries with it a bit of obligation. Uh, one person put the word obligatoriness. It, it is a love of obligatoriness in a natural sense. Where if we see somebody, even a, a fellow citizen out on the street, and we see that they are in need, we want to help them with that need. Not that we're feeling moved on the inside, but we see that there is a need and we move towards meeting that need. So that is the storge or the natural sense of what love is. And Eros is the next one. Eros is a more passionate or sexual type of love. It, it seeks satisfaction. Uh, this love is an overmastering passion, seizing upon and absorbing into itself the whole mind. That's another definition that is delivered here. And this is the type of love, especially that is ignited in somebody who is young, in their late teens and also in their mid-twenties. It can even go into their thirties. It's not that the other age groups don't experience that as we get older it tends to mellow. This type of love tends to mellow. But this is almost the all-consuming love that a young individual, late teens, early 20s, has. It's the one that dominates everything. I once was a waiter, and when I was uh, doing my waitering, there was another guy. I'd just become a believer, and he was a believer as well. And he, we would have conversations from time to time, and he came up and he told me once, he grabbed me, we were in the break room, and he goes, Bill, I got to tell you. He goes, I'm in lust. <laughs> I said, you're, you're what? He goes, I'm in lust. He goes, you know, love is a mature thing that takes time, but I, I've met this girl, and like on the inside, I'm just all, and he didn't use this word, but Twitter paid it on the inside. I, I just need to be where she is. I, I need to see her. And so I understood what he was talking about. I didn't understand all these words about love, but that's where he was. And he was a little more mature in Christ than I was, and he kind of understood exactly what that first view of love is, that first passion that comes across us. Uh, the term, I am crazy in love, would be appropriate for somebody who is in their late teens or early 20s. And it really gives little or no consideration to the object of love. It's more personal. It's more self-seeking in fulfillment. 
Then there is the phileo, where we get the word Philadelphia. It, it arises out of a sense of pleasure found in the object that is loved. You, you love something beyond you, someone beyond you, a brotherly love which is there. And you like to be around them. You share a fellowship. You share a camaraderie. It's a deep abiding friendship. This type of friendship often develops uh, through warriors, those in the military who go into combat. And they're watching out for each other. They're saving each other's lives. And, and that lasts all life long. Uh, it's a phileo love. And then there is also this idea <coughs> excuse me, of agape love. Now, agape love is something, it's an awakened sense of value in an object which causes one to prize it. And so God looks at us and he considers us a prize. And he loves us and it is a self-sacrificial love. It will take away all selfishness and turn it into selflessness. And it will turn it towards the object that is loved. And that's what Christ did for us. He came down, he died for us, he was crucified, and he did that for agape. So all four of those words mean love in the original Greek language, but for us we only have the one. And love will never fail, it will never cease, it will continue forever as we have already read. And it's referring not to eros, not to phileo, not to storge. It's referring to agape love, this selfless love which is out there. Now, uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 32, it says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend... To those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But your love, or you're to love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back, then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And so even to our enemies... This love is to be extended to him. This agape love, not the phileo love. You may not be their friend, so to speak. Uh, you don't have a, a familial relationship where you might have the storge love. If you want to have this love that is sacrificial, even though in your mind or my mind, they don't deserve that sacrificial love. Christ commands us to love them anyway. And he does this. For us, to show us the example, we were unworthy of love, but he chose to love us anyway. And so we are to treat our enemies that way. And we were actually hostile to God before we got saved. And those who are still not saved are still hostile to God. That's what's happening in our country right now. They want to get rid of all mention of God whatsoever or reduce him in his stature of who he is, the creator of the universe, and make him into nothing, nothing that is to be respected or worshipped or lifted up. But God loves us. He created us in, uh, in his image. And because even our enemies are in the image of God, we are to love them sacrificially. So there is love's chemistry here that I talked about before. Love is patient in verse 4. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. 
always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And so this is the scientific obligatory side of love. I think I said last week that the Song of Solomon is more of the Eros type of love that seeks fulfillment, but also it's mixed with the agape love that is there. This sacrificial love, it seeks fulfillment for both parties. It, and it's the type of love that when a man and a woman meet and they're young, that they share between them this love is patient, love is kind. It's the obligatory side and the eros and the phileo side that comes and develops in relationship. Now, love is patient. This is true. It means it suffers long. You continue with the individual that is the object of your love, this agape love. You don't immediately say, well, I'm done with you. I'm out of here. I can't stand your bickering or I can't stand your unfaithfulness or whatever the case might be. The love endures long. I still love you. Christ still loves us even though every day each one of us sins in some way, whether in thought or in deed. And God tells us we are not to sin, but yet we continue to sin. And he died to save us from that sin. He is long-suffering with us. He endures a long time. He is patient. He is long in spirit. He does not lose heart. Uh, He is mild and slow to avenge and slow to anger and slow to punish. And so that is how we're to act with those who are around us, whether it's a family member or an enemy. It also says that love is kind. Uh, To show oneself mild, to be kind or express kindness to someone, that is the agape love that we're supposed to exemplify. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25, An anxious heart weighs a man down, but kind words cheer him up. And that is showing love to somebody. Somebody with a gift of encouragement would be that type of person who would come along just for the sake of the individual, whether friend or enemy, they give them a word of encouragement, and that is an expression of love when that takes place. Proverbs 14.21 says, He who despises his neighbor sins, but blessed is he who is kind to the needy. Proverbs 14.31, He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs 19.17, He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. He will reward him for what he has done. And so it's giving something to someone without having it reciprocated back to yourself. It's this kindness that you just extend without any kind of precursor or predicate that demands it be extended. Then there is envy. It does not envy. Love does not envy. It is not jealous. It does not burn with zeal or to boil with hatred or anger against somebody. First uh, John talks about how can you say you love God and hate your brother? This is, it's a non sequitur. It doesn't match up. You can never say, I hate them. If we say that, or I hate that man, or I hate that woman, that is not the love that God is talking about. That is an envious or a jealous type of love where, where there is this hot attitude towards an individual. And we're never supposed to go down that road. Now, we are all susceptible to that especially when the anger easily arises. Uh, And it's so quick sometimes. I've I've expressed before that it happens to me sometimes when I'm driving. Uh, The people that 
really are not that good at driving for some reason. Of course, we know that we are all good at driving, but when the other people are bad at driving, this instant anger can come up like, what do you think you're doing? Where did you get your driver's license? How is it possible that you're even on the road? You're not paying attention. And then somebody, and you look at somebody as they go by, they're on their cell phone. And there's some people that tell me they don't look at their cell phone, but there are many who do look at their cell phone in instant anger, like, get off your phone. But of course, I've never been on my phone uh, driving down the road. So it, it, it's this anger that comes out. Love is not like that. Love has a tendency to be graceful towards everyone around, whether friend or enemy. Then it says, love is not proud. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. There is no self-display. This idea of employing embellishments to to exalt or extol oneself. Never do that. Never speak in the first person, I, 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 all the time. That is not love. Love is always concerned with others that are around us. And we all make this mistake. We are all somewhat proud of ourselves in ourselves and those who aren't they fall into a a state of depression and and they have a low view of themselves we're not to be puffed up with pride we have to have a balanced view of ourselves that we are sinners and the only reason we have worth is that christ designates to us justification that we are declared right in his eyes that is a healthy view but pride is certainly something that is to be avoided it is also not rude uh, where it's not pleasing or if it's unseemly or unbecoming or dishonorable, we are to avoid that. We are not to in any way be in somebody's face. It, it allows somebody, if they're making mistakes or making fools of themselves or something like that, we just step back. We try to give them counsel and wisdom. Like, no, you probably want to be quiet right now, but we would step back and not be rude and interrupt them or be in somebody's face. It does not seek its own, and that's the next one. Love is not self-seeking. This is the number six, actually. It does not crave or demand something from somebody for itself. And so you're not seeking to garner either material goods or attention or love or anything to yourself. You're always in an attitude of giving. It's also not easily angered, which we... uh, pretty much covered it's not provoked it's not exasperated if somebody has a tendency to push your buttons or it this is the last straw and you just jump over the edge and you fall into the pit of anger it's not easily angered it endures for a long time it also keeps no record of wrongs it takes no account of wrongs suffered in the past and that's easy to do because we have a memory and we see people maybe who have wronged us in the past and we latch on to that and we use that against an individual. And we're supposed to forget what is behind and reach forth unto those things which are before us, Philippians tells us. So we're not supposed to recount the past. Uh, you're always supposed to avoid the word always or never which they're absolutes, and those things are not even true. You always do this, or you always lie, or you always give an excuse. We're not to do that. Or you never take responsibility. These things are absolutes, and we're to avoid those types of words. And love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. 
for instance, if somebody was for the individuals that are rioting across our nation in these big cities, and you see that they take a police station or they take a courthouse, we're not supposed to say, yeah, you just pay it back to the man, that type of thing. It, it does not delight in evil, and those protests most assuredly are evil. Uh, they are designed to create chaos so that some type of despotic rule can come in, some type of dictator, where they can take all the laws and they can just put them to the side and a strong man comes in and takes over. That is the purpose of Chaz or CHOP or Antifa or BLM. That is what they are after. And we are to stand up against that. We are not to delight in these practices. If there's a peaceful protest, that's one thing. But those who start with a peaceful protest often end up into a radical bent of rioting. And we are to stand up and oppose that and say that is not loving and actually stand up against that to sacrifice whatever we need to to make sure that does not become the rule of the day. It's always, uh, love always protects as well. It covers over with silence. It keeps a secret. It hides, it conceals errors and faults of others. It does not broadcast them. And if we do that, that is, of course, gossip. Uh, We're not to engage in gossip or slander or libel, whether it's in spoken word or in written fashion. Uh, We are to make sure that we are always protecting those who are around. Uh, Pastors, shepherds, are given the task of caring for the flock. It says, give careful attention to your herds in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 23. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 It says, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive in the body the things, or to receive when we get to be with Jesus Christ, the things that we have done in the body that are worthy of reward. And one of those things is to protect those who cannot protect themselves. And also, love, always trust. It's where we place our confidence in. We place our confidence in Christ is who we place our confidence in. But also those who are around us. We trust, we are to, by default, our default setting is supposed to be that we trust those who are around us, that we are not in a mode of distrust, that we are so jaded by the, the times in which we live that we seek not to trust anybody. Uh, some women have had bad relationships and therefore they never want to trust any men. And some men think women are just off the rail sometimes and they don't want to trust any women. We're not supposed to do that. Love always trust. You always consider somebody to be a truthful witness. Until you find out otherwise, then you ask for wisdom at that point. Then love always hopes. Now we certainly have a blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God, Savior Jesus Christ. We're to place our hope in him. We are always hopeful of what is around the corner, that good things are going to come, even if we're in the midst of turmoil. It always perseveres. It means to endure, uh, to bear bravely and calmly ill treatments. We are to remain and abide in this type of attitude where we don't count the misfortunes of life where we just want to say, I give up because of so many misfortunes, so many problems. We just pick ourselves back up with that, the assistance of the Holy Spirit, and we keep on moving forward in what he has called us to. And love never fails. It never falls powerless. It's never going to perish. This agape love will always 
be around. So where love never fails, that is the destiny of love. It endures forever. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. And where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And where there is knowledge, it will pass away. So he lists three things here as he's talking about love that will go away, that will cease to be in existence. And it's in a time in the future. And I believe in this passage, he tells us when that is going to be. Somebody who is foretelling or giving predictions, this is the gift of prophecy. And inside the church there, he's speaking to this church in Corinth. We want to keep it in context. There are people who are be giving, would be giving prophecies in the church there because they didn't have all the scriptures written down at the time. And, and people would want to know what God has to say. And so God, through the Holy, the Holy Spirit, which is God, would speak to the individual. The individual would speak, and that would be God's word to the church in Corinth and also with tongues. He says tongues are there, but tongues will be still. There's a time where tongues are going to end and also knowledge. And this knowledge is, if you look up the word in the Greek, it refers to knowledge and like science, just facts, just the facts, ma'am, that type of thing. It will be abolished. Now, why is he saying that all these things will be abolished? Remember, in the context of what's taken place, they have placed the gifts of above love. And they're making great error inside the church. And so those who hold prophecy and tongues and knowledge, even a word of knowledge, way up above everything else, and because they're being misused, Paul says, these things are passing away. They are not fully recognized now. We only know in part, which we'll get to in a minute. But these things are passing away. So those who lift up these gifts as preeminent, he's saying, "Uh, no, don't do so so quickly. They're not that high. There's still the perfect which is to come. And these things, prophecies, tongues, and knowledge are all imperfect. Verse 9 says this, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. So there is a time in the future where these three things, as well as many others, will disappear. And it is when perfection comes. Now there are three views on when perfection comes, what that means. Uh, is it the coming of the church? Is it the coming of the canon of scripture? Is it the coming of Christ? Is it the coming of the new heaven and the new earth? Well, the three prominent ones are the completion of the New Testament. When the, when the perfection comes, some people believe that this is the completion of the New Testament. That's the time that we get this verse fulfilled. I don't happen to hold to that view. But then there are the new heavens and the new earth because everything is going to be new at that time. We're not going to need tongues. We're not going to need prophecy. We're not going to need knowledge. We'll know everything we need to know through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And so we're not going to have to learn anything like we sit down now and go through books. God will give us whatever knowledge we need according to his will. And so there is that view as well. And then the third view is the coming of Christ to earth. That is when perfection will come because it is at that time, as I remind you, that these three things will disappear. Now, I think that the information of when this is going to take place is given to us in verse 12, but let's read verse 11. He installs this before he gives the answer of when this is going to be. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish ways behind me so he's making this statement and this is of sublimity or sublime if you understand what sublime is it's like nobility uh, integrity that type of thing 
he is actually, uh, and not purposefully, bringing an insult to the people in Corinth, telling them they're children. They're acting like children. But he is doing it in such a way that it can be received. He's using tremendous wisdom here on how he's telling him, you know, on the fleshly side, he'd be saying, you guys are a bunch of infants, you're misusing the gifts, you're causing divisions inside the church, you need to stop it right now. Where here he says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. When I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. And so he's saying it so nicely. It's because he loves the people, and if he's talking about love, he has to be able to communicate it in words. Now, the timing of all this, I think the hint is given to us when the perfection comes, getting away from these, excuse me, these gifts that are there, when it's going to end. It says, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. So the gifts that are being used, they're kind of cloudy to what the reality actually will be. He says, then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And so if somebody thinks they know everything, if they've got this gift and it's the pinnacle of existence and they can speak in tongues and nobody is like them in speaking in tongues and this division is happening and happening as a result of this, he says, yeah, but when we see face to face, these things are disappearing. Now there's a rule in interpretation. It's called the law of first mention. This phrase, face to face, what does that mean exactly? Well, we know that Moses meant face to face as one meeting with somebody sitting across from somebody else, face to face. It's a face to face meeting. It is not over Zoom. It is not by way of messenger. It is in person. And when I did a search in the Bible, where does this phrase come up? It comes up more than seven times, but the first seven times it comes up is when God is meeting with somebody face to face. Genesis 32, verse 30, he met Jacob face to face. He met Moses face to face in Exodus 33, 11, Numbers 12, verse 8, Numbers 14, verse 14. God met face to face, quote unquote, with Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 4. Again, Moses in Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, and then Gideon in chapter 6, verse 22 of Judges. They spoke with God face to face. So that's a hint for us. When is face to face going to take place? It's when we see Jesus Christ face to face. This will be at the rapture of the church. That's when we will first see God face to face. Now, he's going to rule and reign here on the earth as well, which means these other gifts for those who believe are not going to be necessary. Now, how is the the body of Christ going to operate in the time of the millennium? We are going to be in our glorified bodies. We're not going to have need of these gifts. We're going to be led and guided by the Holy Spirit himself. But the gifts that are being used right now, they're just a mere reflection. They're not fully realized even now. And the Corinthian church, they were saying, no, this is the ultimate, this is the peak. No, the peak is still to come. So the gifts were supposed to be used as something that brought unification in the church. Instead, in Corinth, the gifts and in the way that they were used were fostering fragmentation and discord. Uh, And again, I said the technique that Paul uses here, it's one of sublimity. It's referring to the intellect or nobility, very skillful in the way that he's delivering an admonishment 
And it's all based in love. Now verse 13 says, And now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So faith is an expression of love. Hope is the manifestation of love. You see that working. Somebody has hope that Christ is coming back. And faith, hope, and love, they're all eternal. But the greatest of these is love. And so he says, love never fails. Now, applying this, and especially in the context of this COVID-19, there was a British doctor. He gave direction to the nurses in the maternity ward. When the babies would come in, and sometimes the babies, there would be so many, they would be neglected. And he instructed the nurses to pick up the babies and to look at them in the eyes until the baby focused on them. When that happened, there was a physiological response where the stomach would start producing the hydrochloric acid necessary for digestion. And so as the baby saw somebody face to face, it was actually physically, physiologically healthful for the infant. And they were able to absorb whatever they ate and they gained more weight. And so they found out that this face to face, the focusing, the eyeball to eyeball, so to speak, it is very healthful for individuals. And that's why it's not the most optimal uh, setting that we have here meeting over the internet. That's why we need to be together in fellowship because we are babes in Christ, so to speak. We belong to him. We are his children, and he wants us to be face-to-face with each other, which you could go in a full study of why it is necessary to get together and and poo-poo this idea that the COVID is going to kill everyone that it comes in contact with. And so there's a theological treatise that could be made just based on this verse alone. But we're to remember that it is the intimate fellowship that God wants us to have, not only with him, but also with each other. And so this idea of love, love is supreme. Christ died for love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And I've quoted this poem before. It's a prayer of St. Richard of Chichester. He lived in 1197 to 1253. This is what he wrote. Thanks be to thee, my Lord Jesus Christ, for all the benefits thou hast won for me, for all the pains and insults thou hast borne for me. O merciful Redeemer, friend and brother, may I know thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, and follow thee more nearly forever and ever. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious gracious unto you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for the gift of love that you have provided for us. You have shown us the way and the way that the gifts are supposed to be used and how they are temporary. And we wait for the face-to-face meeting. Father, even though there are other views about this, We thank you for the gifts to help guide us and unify us in the body of Christ today. But we also desire that face-to-face where they're no longer necessary. For we will have that intimate fellowship with you, all motivated by love. May that be our guide. May you be our guide. In Jesus' name, amen.